Do you know someone who earns a high income but still lives from paycheck to paycheck? They could be a Henry, high earner, not rich yet. Today's guest successfully avoided the Henry trap to achieve financial independence. I hope you enjoy it. And if you do, be sure to subscribe and consider leaving us a review and sharing it with your friends. Welcome to another episode of In Your Best Interest, your personal finance podcast. I'm your host, Philip Müller, and joining us today is Liv Dalin, a former anesthesiologist. After retiring from medicine at the age of 43, he now blogs at the personal finance website Physician on Fire. Liv, thank you so much for coming on the show. I think for all our listeners, it would be really interesting to, first of all, hear where this Physician on Fire actually comes from, right? It's not normal for a doctor or someone from the medical space to venture out into blogging about personal finance. So how did this all come about? Sure. So, well, you know, the physician on fire, some people thought that I, I was just uh, egotistical and thought I was just doing a really great job and I'm, I'm on fire, right? And fuego. And now it's an acronym. It's just, uh, it stands for, of course, fin financial independence, retire early which uh, your readers had maybe heard of. And I realized uh, about six or maybe seven years ago now that I had, after about a decade of working, saving, and investing uh, the money that I earned from uh, my job as an anesthesiologist, that I had become financially independent. And I discovered that when I discovered what it meant to be financially independent, which means you've got enough money to most likely last uh at least a few decades of retirement and, and probably a lifetime. And once I realized that, I was really surprised and really impressed and quite happy, honestly, because that meant I could uh, take my life in a different direction if I wanted to. And so I you know, had some uh, deep conversations with my wife about what we wanted our future to look like. And, and I did decide to retire early. And I also decided to start telling other people about it via a website I found out about financial independence the same way through a blog called Mr. Money Mustache. And then I found a physician blog talking about personal finance called The White Coat Investor. And I really liked both of those blogs. I learned a lot from them. Um, but I knew I had a different story and some other ideas that I could offer. And so I went ahead and started writing and putting on a blog. And uh, it, people seemed to take to it pretty quickly. So you said you were already quite a long time into into your um, career before you started the blog, right? But what was kind of like your first experience when it comes to even personal finance? Was it when you got your first allowance, first job? Or yeah, what's kind of the background on that? Yeah, when I was maybe about the age that my kids are now, like um, preteen, maybe middle school, junior high age, uh, my dad taught me the rule of 72 on uh, that tells us about compound interest and how you can double your money in a, a certain percentage of time. You take 72 and divide it by the interest rate that you're earning. And that's the number of years it takes for your money to double. And, you know, this was back in the, I guess it would have been the mid to late 80s. Uh, and we had started what was going to be a very long bull market run at that time. So, you know, 14, 16, 18% returns were not unusual back then. And, and of course, you're looking at doubling your money in, you know, four, five, six years at those interest rates. And it's like, wow, that, that sounds a lot better than working. But I did start working because you can't have compound interest without 
money to invest. So I, you know, I mowed lawns before I was old enough to get a real job. And then I uh, started working at a grocery store when I was 16. But it wasn't, you know, until obviously I finished college, medical school and residency and was age 30 that I made like real money, you know, like good doctor money. So, um, and then, yeah, as a physician, you're very busy. Uh, a lot of uh, doctors just find someone to take care of their money. They have a money guy. They don't really know what they're investing in, uh, what uh, their money guy or gal is, is maybe charging them in fees. And, uh, you know, you and I were chatting uh, shortly uh, uh, a little while ago offline about, you know, the fees that some people in, in uh, Southeast Asia are paying for standard investment management. You know, these funds with 5% loads and 2 or 3% fees on, uh, for assets under management. And to me, that sounds like, you know, maybe the 1970s or, or 80s in America, you may have been able to get away with that. But uh, I think we have more educated investors now. And, uh, and those fees are just egregious. So, you know, you, if you're, if you're only earning, let's say, six to 8% interest, so okay, your money's going to double in uh, nine to 12 years. But then you have 7% fees on top of that. Well, now you're getting one to three percent, you know, on your money, which, and we're not still not counting inflation to it too, right? Right. Yeah. So <laughs> you might be breaking even. You might be losing money with a real negative interest rate. Totally agree, and a, and a really interesting story, especially the one with the seventy-two. Uh, of course, I heard it many, many times, but not many people, many other people. So if they they want to learn more about it, I know you have actually a post about it. So I will definitely put this in the show notes, so people can, if they want to learn more, we can definitely uh, route them there because I think it's a really cool article. Uh, obviously, you learn it in when you do finance in school. You kind of learn it in university and in, in, in some class if you choose to take them, but most people never do. So I think it's a really, really good um, concept, I think, to teach people because it makes it a little bit more real and it shows like, hey, if you just persevere, right, on average. Yeah. And it's such a simple rule. You know, you can do that math in your head. And you know, I think mathematically, it's actually the rule of 69 point something if you get monthly interest or, you know, 70. So but uh, 72 is divisible by so many <laughs> integers that that's why we uh, I think use that that number you know i think it helped me be a saver uh because you know i can think well would i rather spend a hundred dollars today or have four hundred dollars after two doubling periods which could be you know five or ten fifteen years whatever it might be you know so uh, that helped me save for for a, a rainy day and I, I didn't know necessarily that i was saving to retire early uh, but when i did kind of learn the rules uh, that kind of dictate safe withdrawal rates and all that i decided, yeah, I think I'd like to take my family and start traveling and not be tied down to a, a busy call and operating room schedule. So, the rule of 72 is such a simple way to figure out how long your money takes to double just by waiting for compound interest to work its magic. Leaf has shown how we can use this rule to guide important financial decisions in our daily lives. Next we discuss how he got his wife on board with his financial goals and find out more about their journey to FIRE. Yeah. With that being said, um, you, you kind of told us, you know, how you got to learn about it. You got started to, you know, get exposed to some blogs, right? And then you talk to your wife about it. And I think this is a really important topic that I do want to tackle today as well. It's like talking with your spouse about it, right? And you have to be on the same page because otherwise, that fire journey is not so easy, right? If one is a huge spender and one is not, for example, right? So 
one question is, or that I would like to go into is, hey, how did you get your wife to be on board, right? Uh, yes, Philip, that's a really good question because you're right. Uh, you really do need to be on the same page. And if your financial goals are, are very different and your maybe your money habits are different, you know, that's, that's one of the main things that couples fight about, right? So uh, as far as I think my my wife's and my values around money we're, we're both relatively frugal so that was never a problem for us uh, we're both savers not big spenders and then the part about well retiring early and and cutting off the big income stream you know my wife trusted me with the numbers i certainly started putting together spreadsheets and doing projections and and figuring out well i'm probably financially independent now if I continue to work for another five years or so and we'll be well beyond I think what we probably need and and that was comforting I think to her and then of course you you know you don't talk so much about the money but the goals like what do you want the rest of your lives to look like how do you want to spend your remaining years the time you have left with your kids at home and for us our boys I guess they were eight and ten when I left my uh my job and so we kind of saw a window where we could travel with them. Homeschooling would be relatively easy with all the online resources and the subject matter not being that complicated at those ages. And, uh, of course, COVID threw a wrench on our plans. But we started traveling again, which was, I think, the main impetus. And then the other thing that I uh, got to uh, offer my wife was an opportunity to move back to northern Michigan, where she's got lots of extended family, and it's where she grew up. And uh, that's where she most would like to be. And that's where we are now when we're not traveling. No, absolutely. No, that, that's, that's really cool to, to, to understand how you did that. And the next thing is, so I do want to hear a little bit more about the journey, right? Like what were like the milestones that you achieved? Did you set yourself like smaller milestones? Has the end goal moved, right? So, you know, back in, uh, I think it was medical school. Again, I have to credit my dad. He sent me a book. Um, because I had discovered something called swing trading and I thought, wow, that looks like a way to compound your, your money much, much quicker than this five, seven, eight, ten year kind of thing. And, uh, he's like, mm, that's maybe not a great idea, especially if you're a busy doctor. So he sent me the, uh, Andrew Tobias's book, the only investment guide you'll ever need. And it was, it just laid out the basics, you know, very straightforward, some funny anecdotes and, and, you know, really easy read and, after that, I had a pretty good understanding of, okay, I'll just buy some mutual funds when I make some money and, and not try to, you know, trade stocks because that's probably going to be a losing game for an amateur like me. Um, so that happened. And then I guess I finished residency and that's, you know, where you're, you're an apprentice for like four years to learn how to be an anesthesiologist. And I had a net worth of probably close to zero, maybe a little under. I had bought a condo uh, in 2002 that was worth quite a lot more in 2006 when I finished residency, uh, but I had student loans that probably offset the gains there. Um, and so I guess you could say I was broke. And uh, it was about a 10-year journey from that to financial independence. And when we reached that, we had already paid off uh, the mortgage on the house that we were living in, and we had a little cabin that was also paid off. And the students' loan, student loans were paid off, and uh, you know our living expenses were about seventy thousand a, a year, and 
a 4% withdrawal rate, which is considered relatively safe, uh, dictates that you would need 25 times that number to be considered financially independent. So 1.75, 1.8, something like that million dollars was, was our kind of like basic fine number. And uh, like I said, I wasn't ready to quit my job. I hadn't really known about financial independence until I discovered that we had it. So I made about a five-year plan. I think it ended up being four or four and a half years before I did, I did exit. But you know, one thing that changed the trajectory a little bit too was that I started blogging and that blog got some traction and people wanted to advertise with me. And I said, I would love that, but I don't even know how to put an ad on this blog. Like, <laughs> you know, I was a doctor, not a, a computer guy. So I figured it out though. And, and, uh, and partnered with the white coat investor in a way that, uh, uh, made it easier to monetize, um, the blog. I was you know, writing for free essentially. Um, so it was, it was great fun, but then it also provided some income. We had some other people on, right? Where it's more like they achieved enough passive income to live off of. Sure. They don't need that active income, right? But in your case is you can, you, you have a really good active income job that you can do from anywhere in the world, basically. Yeah. And, and we have been, you know, on like, top of that, you have financial independence, right? Which means you could also walk away from it if you wanted to. Yes. And we'd, we'd be at a sub 2% withdrawal rate if I were to live off of our investments so I, I would feel very comfortable uh doing that if you know if i decided i was no longer interested in writing and being online as, as often as i am so let me ask you a quick question so you know it seems that many people think that fire is living very frugally right and being extreme savers because you google it a lot of times like hey you know as long as i can get around with thirty thousand living expenses per year right. right i only need this much money uh, and things like that What do you think of this? And then shall people focus more on increasing their income or saving more, right? Obviously, right. ideally both, but there is this trade-off of also living in the now, right? Versus in the future. But I think your case, doing it in 10 years showed it can be done. It's not that long, 10 years, right? It goes by really quick too. Right. It depends on a few things. And I tend to be more of the quote unquote fat fire crowd, which is a high budget kind of fire. Depends on where you live and the size of your family and whatnot. But in, in the U.S., it would be like a six-figure annual spend, which we're pretty close to that, I would think. Uh, maybe not when we couldn't travel in 2020 and, and most of 2021, but uh, I think we're back to, to doing that now. Uh, so, you know, for any, you know, and the people I write for, the people, the, what I know are, are the people with high incomes. That's, that's what I had as a physician. And, and so I, I think that most physician, you know, individuals, couples, they're used to a bit of a higher standard of living. And, and so with the income they have, they, they should be able to strive for that sort of fat fire uh, type of lifestyle. Um, but, you know, if you're perfectly content and happy with 30,000 and you are confident that that will remain the case, obviously you're going to be able to adjust your spending upward with inflation. That's the way the, uh, withdrawal rate uh, studies have, have been done. But um, I, I think it, it's nice to have that cushion uh, to be able to spend more if you want to. And so I, I certainly recommend if you are reasonably happy in your job and not completely burnt out or uh, just totally ready to move on, yeah, work uh, a little bit longer than you might have otherwise. Give yourself some room to 
increase that budget if and when you want to. And, uh, you know, it'll really protect you too against that maybe a really poor sequence of returns when you retire. Those first you know, five to seven years are, are pretty darn important uh, in terms of what your investment returns look like in that time when you're actually maybe spending your portfolio down a bit. You don't want to necessarily have to uh, sell, you know, index funds, sell stocks when they are low, right? So uh, having saved a little extra, you know, maybe going a little more conservative with your asset allocation, or like you said, having uh, true passive income streams that uh, will meet a good chunk of your expenses, uh, make it much more less likely that you'll uh, have you know, failure due to poor returns. So FIRE isn't just about committing yourself to live on $30,000 per year. Fat FIRE actually gives you more flexibility for unexpected events. It also allows for a higher standard of living, particularly for high-income individuals who've gotten used to that kind of lifestyle. Now, we dive into how high-income earners can work towards FIRE, while avoiding the high expenses that tend to creep into their lifestyle. No, absolutely. And um, following that up, you, you, you mentioned a few times, you know, doctors and physicians in, in, in general, and obviously that's your background. So. What has been your experience with maybe colleagues, right? How do they approach investing and saving? Because you hear a lot of stories like high income, but also high expenses and in the end, no money, right? And high loans because you're in that spare where you want to be having the same thing that your neighbor has and he's a doctor as well, right? So. The, the Henry phenomenon, right? High earner, not rich yet. Yes, yes. Student loan debt can be a real burden. Uh, the, the average a loan balance of a graduating medical student is right around $200,000. And that usually grows during residency because we're, we're paid, you know, just enough to get by, but um, not, not a, a salary that gives you much wiggle room to, to pay down those loans. And, and so, uh, yeah, it, it can be tough, but we, you know, I like to quote again, uh, Jim Dolly, the white coat investor, he says, live like a resident uh, and, Someone told him to do that before. It's not his idea necessarily, but as a resident, you don't make a lot of money, but you don't spend a lot of money. And if you can continue to do that for a few years after you finish, then when you're making five or ten times as much as you were before, well, you can afford to really save up a lot of money and or pay down a lot of those loans. I like to recommend that people try to live on half of their take-home pay and use the rest to pay off debt and or invest. And if you can do that for about 15 years, you should be able to go from you know, broke to financially independent, uh, give, you know, give or take a few years, depending on what the market does for you and how you invest during that time. Yeah, I think that, that's a really good uh, rule of thumb as well. Now, when I, you have a high income, you can do that. Now, you know, if, if I'm talking about someone earning, you know, maybe they average household income of uh, 60,000 in America, well, living on half is a lot more difficult. You had asked earlier about whether I would recommend people earn more or spend less. And I think it's it's really just all about the gap between the two and whatever you can do to grow that gap uh, and still live comfortably and, and be happy and not be overworked uh, or not be you know feeling too deprived with, uh, with the frugality aspect. Yeah, just do what you yeah, can. Yeah, no, quick question then for you. Uh, since 
you know, if you when you go to university and uh, you study to be a doctor, right? In the first part of the job, coming like hospitals, you work with our medical providers. You you work with. Is there any help towards personal finance at all, or was it at all covered at all throughout the whole journey? For me and for most, no, not at all. There are a few medical schools that are starting to offer like maybe a class that can be taken in the fourth year. I know a, a Dr. Jason Mizell down in Arkansas has, has been uh, uh, doing a great job of, of putting together a bit of a curriculum. Uh, a friend of mine, Dr. Jimmy Turner down in North Carolina, he is also uh, does a good job of teaching his residents some personal finance. But there hasn't been a whole lot of that. And people are waking up to the fact that it's really giving uh, doctors a, you know, you know just a, a, a no good place to start. They don't know business. They don't know personal finance. They do make a lot of money and you can make a lot of mistakes and still do okay. But if we can help these uh, physicians and others from making all these mistakes early on, then that's uh, the big we're, thing, yeah, yeah. No, no, that's, that's because it's interesting because I think the, what, what happens more in like you know companies like Microsoft, your Salesforce, or what have you. Even in Singapore, we actually we give free free talks on personal finances and budgeting and stuff. And so that's why I was just trying to see, hey, where did, do they get anything? Uh, and this is because I, I've never really done it with a hospital or something. So I was just wondering. Yeah, it's really um, not part of any curriculum. Uh, we generally need to seek it out on our own. On your own, yeah. No, then, then, then you know, then I think you having your blog is really helpful. Yeah. Right. And. So yeah, I read a book, but most people don't. And um, and it, asked, it wasn't really until about six or seven years into my career that I took a closer look at what I was actually invested in. I had some fairly random mutual funds, most of them with T. Rowe Price. I was paying, I think, 38 basis points for an S&P 500 fund when I could have been doing that with Vanguard for uh, 10, 15% of that, right? Like. A, you know, five to 10 basis points at the time. Uh, it's even lower now. But um, yeah, so I, 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 that's about the time I really got into it. No, that's awesome. And then th this was actually where I was going to go next. Um, would you be able to share a little bit what your portfolio looks like and what kind of like nowadays your investment strategy is for the listeners? Sure. Yes, I believe in index funds primarily. And I've got a, a roughly 70% uh, stock allocation 10% in bonds and cash, and uh, about 10% in passive real estate inve investments. Those would be like funds and syndications through crowdfunding platforms. So uh, the stock portion, uh, it's mostly you know, Vanguard, total stock market, some S&P 500, because I tax locks harvest between the two of them. Uh, about a 20% of my stocks are international. And uh, yeah, it's it's fairly straightforward. It's not quite a Bogleheads three fund portfolio, but it's not terribly complicated either. I have, after becoming financially independent and then some, decided to invest in uh, some startup companies. Uh, just kind of taking a shot because, you know, you can, I I do believe in having a little bit of play money, you know, money you can afford to lose, but 
maybe uh, strike it rich with and uh, have some fun with. Yeah, so that's kind of like what has changed a little bit over time, okay? Yeah, yeah. yeah no, it makes it makes a lot of sense, right? If you right. have that cushion and you still have the income too, so you can also invest in something that might take five to ten years, right, to return your money. Right, I don't courses. need liquidity. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, which yeah. is super, which which is obviously ideal if, if 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 that's the case, right? If you don't have to touch your investments uh, and let them right. let them keep growing. So. Um, so thank you for sharing that and actually being so open about it, uh, oh, about sharing that portfolio with our listeners. Now, um, I do have a couple more questions before we, we get off, but one of them is actually when people have children and they come on the show, I always ask <laughs> because we get a lot of questions about this from listeners. It's actually like, how do you teach your children about finances? Right. I, everyone has probably their own way, but it's always good to hear from our, um, guests on what has your strategy been? Uh, sure. And helping them understand it or making, give, giving them something of a head start or. Right. So a lot of people think, you know, talking about money is taboo, especially with your kids, but we certainly don't uh, feel that way. We feel the opposite. So we, we talk about money. We talk about what we're invested in. And I taught my kids the rule of 72 when they, they were even younger than, than I was when I learned it. And so one way that we, show them how compound interest works is rather than opening a bank account, you know, for them at, uh, you know, the local bank or, or credit union, you know, I just said, well, we'll start the bank of mom and dad and it's a spreadsheet. So when they get Christmas money they get birthday money, uh, if they were to earn money, you know, doing babysitting or lawn mowing or whatever, uh, they just give it to me and I add it to the ledger, a new line. And every month we give them 1% interest. So, and works out to over 12% annually. And they've, you know, over the course of the, I don't know, six or eight years we've been doing this, they each have more than $1,000 in there. And every month that they keep that balance, you know, over $1,000 where they're getting more than $10 just for having money invested in our little bank of mom and dad. And so, you know, that, that helps them be savers. Again, they like to see that balance grow. And, you know, it's, you know, I think modeling, good financial behavior to talking about why we chose to not rent a car for these five days that we're going to the theme parks every day. We're on our way to Orlando uh, again next week. Uh, we, we actually bought annual passes for Universal Orlando and we're, we're getting our money's worth because I think we've been there 30 plus days over the last 12 months. So good. <laughs> we like to get out of northern Michigan in, in the winter. And uh, yes. it's not a bad place to do it. No, absolutely. And this is, again, the benefit of being a uh, fire, right? <laughs> you, oh, can, yeah. you can just, uh, you know, take them there. And, and I think just having, you know, them seeing that in the long term is, 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 uh, is obviously pretty, um, you know, inspiring. I think if you see your oh, kids yeah. doing well. Oh, yeah. like, and they look but up we, to you, We right? involve them in our money decisions. Like uh, today, we're... We're uh, recording this on a Tuesday, and there's a, a homeschool group that offers a ski club, and they work out a deal with some of the local ski hills where you can go uh, for a discounted price. So it wasn't a cheap day for the three of us, my myself and my two sons. It was $176 for the rental setup and lift tickets for the day. But we looked at the rack rate for everything, and it would have been $330 to go skiing today if we hadn't gone through the, the homeschool club. And uh, there is another ski hill that has a deal on Wednesday and Thursday nights, 10 bucks for the rental, 10 bucks for the lift ticket. You know, it's amazing. 
and a different place that gives you a rental and a lift ticket for 33 bucks a piece for a daytime ticket on a Sunday. And so like last year we were around a lot more in the winter, but we would hit up all these different deals, you know, and then spend it and instead of spending three to 500 a day, which is really easy to do when you don't own your own equipment and you're paying full fare for your lift ticket, it would be 60 to a hundred bucks most days. So, you know, we talk about no, it's that. It's good for then, them to see that, right? Yeah. Not just, oh, I'm just paying it, right? And it's just, you know, there's yeah. a decision and it makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely love it. So then before we wrap it up, uh, which blog post of yours would you recommend our listeners read first? Or which one are your like, top three that if they come to your website after this and want to really get a um, head start on, on where should they go? And we'll link sure. those in the show notes for sure. For everyone. Absolutely. You know, one... I would say is the tale of four physicians and that goes through doctors A, B, C, and D uh, who have different spending habits but have identical incomes and just shows how different their numerical, you know, their time to, to becoming financially independent is uh, and what changes you could maybe make uh, to help speed along your timeline. I think that would be the first one. Um, since you talked about the rule of 72 and you said not a lot of people know that, uh, I guess I'll nominate that one. Double your money with the rule of 72 uh, in case you didn't quite pick up on what we were dropping there. And a, a third one. Um, let's see. I think, you know, a simple three fund portfolio is a great starting point and it can be a fine ending point as far as you're investing. So I've got several posts on the three fund portfolio, um, but I've got an all posts page that you can just uh, search on and, and find several posts in there that go into some more detail on that. Oh, that's awesome. We'll definitely have those uh, those in the show notes. And last but not least, you, any things that you're currently researching or learning the most about right now? Any hot topics that you're interested in? Um... Well, I'm always reading, always learning. Obviously, in the U.S., inflation is an issue, so it's been interesting to see how, how that's evolving and, and how the Fed plans to fight that by raising interest rates and what that might do to the stock market. And, of course, all of these hypotheses and, and predictions have been kind of baked into where, where returns are now, and we're seeing that in January with in February now with uh, some a uh, little bit of a, a pullback in, in the stock market. Um you know, cryptocurrency and NFTs and all of this. It's always fascinating. I am mostly on the sidelines. Uh, I did invest in a company called Republic.com, and they are in that space, in a number of other spaces too. They help fund startups as a big part of their business, but they're a company that will do well as cryptocurrency and crypto assets do well. So that's fairly interesting, even though I can't say I fully understand it all, but uh, I, I tried, I try to learn. Oh, that's awesome. I think that's really interesting, interesting topics to, to pursue. I like them all myself. So yeah, not, mm -hmm. not too much into it either, but uh, I think it's always good to learn more about the future and what, you know, I think especially in the crypto space, NFT space, everything moves mm -hmm. like a year moves in like a few days. And, uh, yes. you know, the kids who are all in the discord channels and telegram groups, I don't know how they do it and still sleep, but uh, mm -hmm. I dabbled a little bit and it's crazy, right? Uh, in terms of the speed of things happening and the volatility and returns and losses <laughs> in a day. 
Uh, oh, yeah. It's not what we're used to do from traditional finance when, oh, it's two, down two and a half percent, three percent. It's a big day, right? Yes, that's a so, big minute, <laughs> average minute, maybe in, uh, in that space. No, really cool. Yeah. And, uh, um, thank you so much, uh, Lee, for being with us. Really, really appreciate it. Yes. Uh, thank you for the invitation. It was a, a great conversation and I'm always happy to chat. That's it for the show this week. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe and leave us a review. The reviews really help us and we love reading your comments as well. In Your Best Interest is hosted by me, Philip Müller. We're produced by Stashaway and we're mixed by Mo Ramley.